0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to another La Trobe Asia event. I'm Ewan Graham, I'm the Executive Director of uh, La Trobe Asia, Uh, and today I'm very pleased um, that we're running our very first Pakistan event uh, in uh, La Trobe Asia's existence. Um, I'd like to first of all acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, uh, on which we meet and pay my respect to their elders past and present. Uh, Joining me on the panel today for an in conversation uh, and then for a question and answer uh, with you afterwards are Christine Fair uh, and Ian Hall. Uh, Christine Fair is a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor uh, in the Security Studies Programme with Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a Senior Political Scientist with the Rand Corporation uh, and as a Political Officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan uh, and Kabul. And Christine also has uh, a, a new book out which I'll let you um, talk about. Uh, not new book, existing book. It's new-ish. newish. Okay. Well, we'll count. We'll, we'll settle on the new part of the <laughs> formula. Um, Professor Ian Hall is uh, um, from the School of Government and International Relations at uh, Griffith University, Griffith Asia Institute. Uh, a friend of La Trobe Asia who's um, often been uh, get down here to give us um, podcast interviews and take part, part in previous events, uh, mainly with an Indian flavour. Uh, Ian, uh, I definitely know, does have a new, a new book out as well which um, on uh, Modi's foreign policy, uh, which uh, I, I recommend to you all as a, an authoritative uh, resource. Ian's also the co-editor of the Australian Journal of, of International Affairs and an academic fellow uh, of the Australia India Institute here in the University of um, well, here in Melbourne, at the University of Melbourne. Christine, maybe I'll start with, uh, with you. Um, I admit uh, I'm coming at this from a low base of, of knowledge, but to the uninitiated, the dynamics of, of terrorism in Pakistan um, can seem both uh, nebulous and somewhat intimidatingly uh, perplexing. Uh, who do you consider to be the most influential uh, actors in this, if the term's appropriate, marketplace? Uh, among Lashkar Toiba, Jayashi Mohammed, the Taliban, the inter service intelligence of Pakistan, or the Pakistan military, there are many actors. Can you um, dispel some of the fogs and say who is most important in, in your view?
1: The Pakistan Army Chief. So, um, the, the ISI, so, uh, you know, interestingly, if this notion of the rogue. ISI was actually started by an American ambassador, Ambassador Oakley, who was serving during the time when the United States was cooperating quite closely with the Pakistanis in the anti-Soviet jihad. And a lot of questions were coming up about the nature of our partnership and, and why it was continuing to proliferate nuclear weapons while we were continuing to give them money. And so it was actually Ambassador Oakley who was no longer with us anymore, but I had the chance to speak with him while he was still lucid. So this idea of the rogue ISI I, I simply dispel and the reason for that is, is that the director general of the ISI, he is seconded from the Pakistan army. He serves, it's always been a he, sorry ladies I'm not being a sexist, um, at the leisure of the army chief, also a dude. And there have been a few occasions when the ISI has displeased the army chief and then he has been uh, ceremoniously promoted to a position of irrelevance as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So. Uh, so from my point of view, it's the army chief. And then followed uh, very closely, you have to sort of understand that these different terrorist organizations, they have different ideological moorings, and they spend a lot of time differentiating themselves from each other. And so I spend a lot of time paying attention to how they differentiate themselves from each other. So Jaisha Muhammad, it is a Deobundi group. It is very closely related to the Afghan Taliban, to the Pakistan Taliban, as well as a bunch of sectarian groups that are murdering largely Pakistanis. Um, you know, in many ways, they save their best suicide bombers for home. Uh, so the, the Jaish muhammad while it has these very deep connections to a bunch of other Dale Bundy groups, which also has a Dale Bundy political party associated with it, the JUI, The Jaish itself under Masoud Azhar is a very tightly controlled organization, very tightly allied uh, to the ISI and the the army that oversees it. And sometimes people get confused with Jaish and other parts of the the Deobundi militant milieu, which have actually broken away from Jaish. But Jaish itself is very disciplined, even though the rest of the Dale Bundy organizations are the ones primarily murdering Pakistanis. And of course, uh, the Afghan Taliban are primarily murdering um, Afghans. Then you have the Lushka Taiba, which is very much separate from this Dale Bundy network. And oh, by the way, because the, uh, the Osama bin Laden was co-located with the Taliban, which also hosted several other Dale Bundy groups operating in Kashmir and elsewhere, you have this close association between Al-Qaeda and the Dale Bundy groups. So even though LA Hadis is the ideology motivating lashkar e taiba which in principle has more in common with Osama bin Laden than not, lashkar e taiba was always separate from this complex. And I would say right now, uh, the primary vehicle that the army chief is using to harass Indians is gonna be Jaish Muhammad because Lashkar Taiba has this particular domestic politics that makes it very useful to the Pakistani deep state domestically. So if you're the Pakistani army chief, you might view the Jaish And Lashkar-Taiba is somewhat interchangeable depending upon what you're trying to achieve abroad and domestically. And I view them as just simply uh, two other instruments in the order of battle at the Pakistan army chief's disposal. Does that answer your question?
0: It does. Um, You argue that Pakistan um, has become accustomed to using its various terrorist organizations and arms as tools of foreign policy, in particular since um, acquiring a nuclear deterrent. In the late 1990s. Um,
1: Actually earlier than
0: that. Okay, well that's an interesting <laughs> sub angle that maybe you can unpack. Is the is the nuclear status of Pakistan, how relevant is, is that to this in the way that um, that hierarchy that you've described employ terrorism for foreign policy aims?
1: So let's take a historical view just very briefly. So the first time Pakistan deployed non-state actors to secure territory to which it was not entitled was the First Kashmir War of 1947 and 48. Had Pakistan not done that, it would be in control of no part of Kashmir. And for a variety of reasons, you know, Pakistan pretty much got away with that. It tried to do so again in 1965. This time it used a combination of state and non-state actors. It didn't materially change the, the territorial disp- dispensation of the region. But it also got away with that. It used, uh, in a variety of ways, between 47 and 1990, non-state actors, mostly as uh, engaging in sabotage sort of operations. It had tried, in and part, in part of the, the motivation of the 1965 war was to motivate a larger insurgency in Kashmir, and it failed. After the Indians, grotesquely mismanaged the politics of the state principally by um, proroguing a popularly elected state government in Kashmir and then fraudulently holding elections to put into place one of its goons. Uh, You had a domestic insurgency that was uh, indigenous, but this corresponds with the collapse of the jihad in Afghanistan and you have a bunch of unemployed militants who the Pakistanis very cleverly move over, and you have this very quick Pakistanization of the the Kashmir insurgency. So actually, Pakistan has been doing this from the beginning, and that's just in the Kashmir theater. It also was very involved in the Punjab insurgency, which begins in the late 70s through 1992, when it was still... uh, Uh, It still included East Pakistan. There was a lot of malfeasance in India's northeast because it had easy access. So we often think of Pakistan using Islamist vectors, but in fact, it it has used other vectors as well. So going to this nuclear question, Pakistan is engaging in what I'll call subconventional innovation fairly early on so we can see from Pakistan's army journals that while it's working with the United States and we're trying to train them to be partners in counterinsurgency it's actually learning how to run insurgencies and we see this documented from about 19 from April, April 1979 Carter and he actually wants to sanction them earlier. He wants to sanction them as early as 1977. U.S. intelligence is observing under Zulfikar Bhutto, who, op- oh, by the way, also began the Soviet, the uh, the Afghan jihad on its own time and its own dime. Zulfikar doesn't get the the credit for bad things that he deserves. Everything gets uh, lumped on Zia when a lot of the stuff that happened was Zulfikar. So by April '79. The Carter administration is adequately concerned about Pakistan's ability with respect to reprocessing technology that we sanction it. And this timing is terrible, right, because of what happens in the summer of 79. So, um we know that the presser amendment gets put forward in june of 1985 this is a gentleman's agreement that says we know pakistan's not going to move back from the red line that the that was crossed in april of 79 so they basically established a new red line don't do anything that embarrasses us but we now know that by the time the presser amendment was passed Pakistan had already developed a crude nuclear device. So depending upon who you believe, whether it's Zohar Bhutto, whether it's Abdul Sattar, whether it is Feroz Hassan Khan, we know that somewhere between 79 and 84, Pakistan has a crude device that can be put on the back of a cargo aircraft and pushed out in Extrema. So I've I've actually crunched these numbers. And for me, the only non-nuclear period, and so this is where Paul Kapoor and I in, Paul Kapoor and I disagree because Paul Kapoor completely pays no attention to or, A, you know, didn't know about this, this 1979 episode. So from my point of view, the only non-nuclear period post-71 is 71 to 79. But what we can see um, from 79 onward is that Pakistan is actually being emboldened, in what it's doing. At some point it is involved, by the time you get to 1982, it's heavily involved in an insurgency in Afghanistan, it's heavily involved in the Punjab, it is really trying hard to muck around in Kashmir. And by the time you get to 1990, when the whole world is taking Pakistan for a nuclear weapon state, we we see that Pakistan's subconventional activity exponentially expands. But it's not until 1998 when Pakistan has an overt nuclear weapons capability, that Pakistani adventurism using Islamist assets begin to migrate, become visible outside of Kashmir. So the first Taiba attack that happens after nuclearization is December 2000, but remember the Cargill, the Cargill War. So I, I've argued, and you can sort of imagine it you know, geographically, that as Pakistan's nuclear umbrella begins to unfurl, Pakistan's adventurism, um, throughout the rest of India becomes increasingly emboldened.
0: Uh, Ian, let me bring you in at this point, uh, maybe to talk a little bit more about the the India-Pakistan um, dynamic and how terrorism plays in that. Um, in the same way that uh, um, the Hindu nationalist Marendra Modi serves as a convenient antagonist for, for Pakistan, to what extent is that um, true in reverse? Is ta- Pakistan Pakistani terrorism... Useful for Modi uh, as a way of burnishing his his security or leadership credentials, or justifying other areas of his policy agenda.
2: Look, I think that's pretty clear, and it's been borne out pretty clearly since the Pulwama terrorist attack in Kashmir in the middle of February earlier on this year, which was during the election campaign. The election campaign that Modi eventually won with an enhanced majority in May of two thousand nineteen, and that attack was was quite, a, quite a, a boon really for Modi, who up until that point was doing not doing terribly well in the polls, if we can believe polls. I mean, that's the one big question that we have in India as elsewhere is that the opinion polls seem to have been understating some of the support for Modi. But what we can see is that after that attack happened, there's a change in the rhetoric that Modi is using, there's a change in the posture, and he's obviously also able to take military action against Pakistan. Uh, And they send these aircraft across the line of control, indeed, into Pakistan proper. They um, destroy or supposedly destroy these these terrorist camps, although that's highly disputed. And this whole episode then feeds into this broader narrative about national security, which Modi's able to use very successfully during the election campaign. So even if we just look, even if we look at the manifestos, the most crudest way of looking at this, if we look back at the 2014 election manifesto, it was all about development. Uh, if we look at the 2019 manifesto when it eventually emerged, not that manifestos like here matter all that much in elections, the first few paragraphs were all about national security. So that, that, that's a good indication of how, you know, a, a leader like Modi can use national security in order to, to burnish his credentials um, as a prime minister and we saw that, we've seen it very clearly over the last few months.
0: Now that he's back in his second term. Um, how significant is that raid that you mentioned and the Indian response in February? Uh, does that redraw a, uh, a baseline in terms of what can be expected as a, as a response to a, a, a terrorist attack in, in Kashmir or otherwise directed against uh, uh, India? And will the Indian people expect that um, the response in future attacks will, will have to start from something of a, a similar level? And what are the implications for the risk of escalation um, turning into a, uh, a, you know, a larger conflict between uh, India and Pakistan.
2: So for a very long period of time, and, you know, Christine's talked about the fact that, you know, the, a lot of these attacks at the beginning, there's an involvement in insurgencies in the 90s and before that, and then we see a stepping up of terrorist attacks in the 2000s. For that period, throughout that period of time, India is pretty restrained about how it responds. So it's not using military responses. It starts to explore during the 1990s the the idea of using the conventional its conventional military to punish Pakistan in some way, seize some territory as a kind of bargaining chip, send you know send send the army in somehow or another, seize some territory, uh, and then try and come to some sort of arrangement, post some sort of terrorist attack that could occur, but that 's very difficult. It's potentially quite seriously escalatory, it could be misinterpreted by the Pakistanis and so on. So, so the Indians and the Indians don't necessarily also have the capability, the military capability to be able to do that successfully. So now what, Mo, but what Modi does is a little bit different. So I'm not sure that we can see that the India has shifted completely away from its, its what we call strategic restraint with regard to this. But in the end of 2016, Modi sends special forces into across the line of control to destroy some camps and kill some militants. Again, details disputed, and we don't know. And in the Pakistani side, these raids are completely denied. Um, and so, and these raids Modi used again to consolidate his domestic base, they were hugely popular amongst that base, and in fact in the run up to the election campaign there was a movie called Uri the Surgical Strikes which came out at the end, I think it was in December of, of 2018, and the Modi government and his ministers really seized on this movie. Uh, and they were using lines from the movie in their speeches and in their addresses. And there's, famous, there's a budget statement in which, which is littered with lines from this particular movie. And that kind of backs the Modi government into a corner when in February we see another terrorist attack. So Modi, in a way, had, you know, had to respond. There was going to be public demand there. There was an expectation that he had to act. But he also had to up the ante. It couldn't just be a secretive... Special Forces rate, right? it had to be something different. And I think a lot of people started muttering before the airstrikes happening, that airstrikes probably were the, the most plausible response. Now, where do we go next, is the big question. I'm not sure that we can move much beyond airstrikes. I'm not a military defense studies specialist, but again, I think any, anything much more than that, particularly sending ground troops or tanks across, the, across that line of control or even into Pakistan proper, you know, would be you know highly problematic, and I think the the biggest problem that we've got is that both sides think that during that uh, that episode earlier on this year, both sides came out of it thinking that they they'd won to some degree and that they had the upper hand. Um, so the Indians think that you know we've executed this strike, we've taught these people a lesson, we've we've shown what we can do, and we've shown our resolve. And on the Pakistani side, I think there's a belief that since they shot down an Indian aircraft in the 24 hours or a few hours later uh, and then they handed the pilot back and in some ways they won the public relations war for reasons that I could go into but I won't too much now. On Pakistan's side, think that they've kind of restored their honour and, and, and they, they still are fairly dominant in this relationship. So one of the problems that I think we have now is that there's a real risk of misunderstanding on both sides uh, of further steps, which, you know, are highly likely to occur.
0: More recently than the... Uh than the, the the terrorist incident and the raid, um, there's been a change in Kashmir's administrative status. Very highly controversial. Um, happened very quickly under Modi's second term. Um, what, in your view, are the drivers behind that? And is it how is it likely to affect the uh, India-Pakistan balance? And Christian, I'd also be very interested in, in uh, your interpretation whether that will have an effect on the the various um, balance between the terrorist. Uh, Actors on the ground in in Kashmir.
2: Christine knows this so much better than I do. So why, why, do you, why don't you go first? I, I will fill in if any gaps. If there are <laughs> any gaps to fill, which I doubt.
1: You are being overly modest. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I was in India when this went down, and I had a little bit of a heads up that something was happening. I, I, although I didn't know what. I was a I was a what they call a SME, a subject material, a subject matter expert. With a bunch of cadets and instructors from West Point. And for about 11 months, we had been planning what they call a staff ride to India. And we were going to be looking at a couple of sites. We were going to be looking at the Mumbai attacks, and we had planned a series of what they call stands there. And also the Cargill conflict, which is something I'd spent a lot of time on. And we were going to go to Srinagar. And, you know, anyone who knows the Indian bureaucracy, um, if you have an official if you have an official passport everything becomes much more difficult which was very surprising to the to the lads at West Point who were used to the official passport opening doors you know india sees the official passport and it's like really so i had no problem but the west point gentleman did Uh, And so this was something that was going back and forth for a very long time. We were seeking briefings from the 15th Corps, possibly from the 16th Corps, which is the the corps which have responsibility for the um, line of control. Four days before uh, their flights are supposed to leave, the defense attaché says, no trip for you. And uh, this had never happened in West Point's history. It was a really big deal. Um, if, the, in fact, the trip had remained canceled, it, it was just not going to be good for, for a lot of people. So they worked out a negotiation, which was if you take Kashmir off your itinerary, you can go. And so we, we saluted and we went. But in my 30 years of dealing with India, I'd never seen anything like this. And at first, I was uh, attributing it to some of the, the Trump stuff which, by the way, I think is very important about the why, is, is, is Trump. So when we got there, it, it, the, there was like 40,000 troops of a variety of stripes, airlifted, different aircraft airlifted. The canceling of the Amanath Yatra, the Sunday night, it, I said to my colleagues at West Point, I said, yeah, I get it. They're, they're pulling Article 370. And in fact, that, that by about 10 o'clock, the next morning that had been the case so I knew something was really dodgy from these interactions which were just so out of the bounds of normal interactions with the, the Indian bureaucracy but going to the timing so I was also in India during Palwama so I spent a lot of time in India this past year and the whole article 370 thing was floated so this wasn't out of the blue um, but for whatever reason, it sort of got sucked up into obama Bala Code, and then the election cycle. But I think there were two things that dictated the timing of this. One has been the, the the Indian belief, and I have to say I agree with them, that Trump is basically going to give up anything to the Taliban to get out of Afghanistan by 2020, right? And what the Taliban want is they want a return to power without contesting elections. They want to get rid of elections altogether. They basically want to destruct much of the post Bonn order. And women's rights in particular are in the sights of the Taliban. And, you know, let's be really clear about President Trump. Do you think he really cares about human rights, women's rights? Of course not. He cares about being reelected. And in Afghanistan, goes to hell in a handbasket and he wins, it's not his problem. If he loses, it's not his problem. So from India's point of view, what happens in Afghanistan historically does not stay in Afghanistan. Remember, Jaishul Mohammed is the product itself of, of an Indian Airlines hijacking that lands in Kandahar, etc. So the Indians have been very apprehensive about a post-U.S. withdrawal with the presence of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And then secondly, and, you, and this sort of shows you the mendacity and, and cravenness of President Trump. You remember, January 2018, you know the, the tweet state, Pakistan is terrible. It's a liar. It takes our money. It kills our troops, which ironically was probably the only truthful tweet yeah. I've ever seen the man, you know, bang out. And you're kind of wondering what happened to him. Did like the Truth Mobile stop by? Sure. Um, but I also knew that this was going to be short-lived because you cannot achieve what he wanted to achieve by by both kicking Pakistan and kicking Iran, and, and the map is going to over-determine what happens, and you have to have access to a port. So um, so basically, when Trump, and he's sitting there with Imran Khan, and he has reversed himself in the entirety of Pakistan, never lies, it does, <laughs> it's just like, what the hell? And then he says the most extraordinary thing. He takes the you know the Indian, you know, the third rail of Indian politics and he hits Modi aside the head with it when he says and Modi has asked me personally to intervene in Kashmir. I mean, it is just the most extraordinary. And Indians were so funny. They were like, how could he lie about this? I'm like, dude, he has literally lied 11,387 times. <laughs> and you And you thought that somehow you're special? Get in line. (laughs) Ticket katal land banal. You know, Trump lies to everyone. So, but this, I think, uh, really these two factors, more than anything, hits the what now? Because I think I I was actually expecting them to pull this trigger a little bit earlier than this. But I think this is the timing, and um, and this affects what Pakistan can do because. The, from Pakistan's point of view, it holds a trump card on Trump getting out of Afghanistan. And so between now and 2020, it, it, it can pretty much do what it wants. It's going to get its IMF bailout. It's not going to get a blacklifting on Fatof. The only thing that's going to constrain it is its beliefs about what India may or may not do and what role the U.S. will or will not have in trying to shape escalation. And if you looked at what happened during Pulwama and Balakot, you actually saw a very absent United States because Trump was golfing. And and I think this, this was an interesting experiment. I think there will be dissertations written about this, right? Because for a very long time, Pakistan expected the United States to play a certain role in pulling them apart. And we've seen that the United States over time has been changing a little bit from this. But the U.S. has never been absent, right? This is almost like a Monte Carlo experiment. And so, and, and Trump has this effect, right, on the U.S.-Pakistan relationship is because he is so random in a lot of ways, like that 2018 tweet. So I think Trump, in his desire to get of Afghanistan, has, has handed Pakistan a lot of leeway. And the only thing that's going to constrain it is what it thinks India will do and what it thinks Trump may or may not do in, in trying to de-escalate a crisis should it emerge.
2: No, I mean, just look, I mean, on the on the Indian side, in terms of in terms of what they're doing in Kashmir I mean clear. So Kashmir has had a special status running back to the to the accession and then some negotiations around the Constitution and so on. Uh, they go back into the 1950s. And what Modi has done is he swept all of that away. Uh, and in so doing, he's appealing to his again, his Hindu nationalist base that believes that Rightly or wrongly, that these special provisions that were put in place for 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 Kashmir and have been retained in place, are there to appease uh, some of the the Muslim the Muslim population some of the Muslim population in, in Kashmir. So um, now, what Mo, of course Modi hasn't said that he hasn't come out. He gave a, a public speech on television. He hasn't he didn't come out and speech and say I don't want to be appeasing these Muslims anymore. Of course, Modi's Modi instead came out and said no. This is about Trying to resolve the persistent insecurity and unrest in this state through economic development, and these articles of the constitution prevent people from people from outside of Kashmir from buying land in Kashmir, from investing in Kashmir, from Kashmiris from selling their land, and that's very important for reasons that we could get into, um, and. So what Modi is effectively saying is I can try and deal with some of these problems of, of unrest within Kashmir and some of the demands for an independent Kashmir or so on by through economic development and because I have a track record a very disputed track record on economic development uh, I c- I'm the one that can can best deliver this and so that's that's how he's gone about primarily selling this to the, to the, to the domestic population now so far that looks pretty pretty popular actually um and he's you know he's been been so far you know criticized by his political opponents as well but but his political opponents actually i from what i can see from outside well yes the ones in Kashmir are in under house arrest but also uh you know the ones you know congress i think's response has been kind of interesting because i think i think they're going to have to recalibrate their position over time, so time's going to tell them whether or not Modi's uh, promises are going to are going to pay off here, and whether the economic development strategy might address some of the problems about social and political unrest. Um, so time time will tell on this. Now, in terms of tactics, though, the way in which India has gone a- gone about managing this, flying large numbers of security forces in. Uh, putting the whole place under curfew, putting local politicians under house arrest, uh, stopping the internet and phone connections into into Jammu and Kashmir, all of those things and then downgrading to Union territory instead of state. All of these things are very heavy-handed and may well be counterproductive, at least in the short term. And they've obviously been very counterproductive in terms of the international, the way in which this has been seen by the international community and, and, and plays into the hands of Pakistanis like Imran Khan who's recently tweeted that this was, this is a sort of incipient genocide or ethnic cleansing of Kashmir uh, through demographic change.
1: But can we take we up the, to... the, the union? Yeah, I, Imran Khan, he has no loci standi. Uh, Uyghurs, bro. Uh, Balochistan, and, we could, and, and the way Pakistan treats its own Kashmiris, I mean, that anyone entertains his opinion on this kind of is, is maddening. But I think that there's two things about this move that I think is probably worth exploring much more in depth. And this is the, cha- A, bifurcating to move Kashmir away from Ladakh. So for some reason, you know, Ladakh is very happy being a union territory without a local uh, legislature. And there's this, some, uh, an Indian, uh, I'm blanking out his name, he's starting a PhD program at MIT. I mean, that's really interesting observation. There are a lot of small territories in India, which are perfectly happy being union territories governed from the center. and Ladakh is one of them. And part of it was like being yoked to the politics of Jammu Kashmir was very frustrating for Ladakh and the uniqueness of Ladakh. But I have a somewhat different take than I think other liberals on downgrading the state to a union territory uh, in Jammu and Kashmir. And that is there is a problem with politics in Kashmir going back from the beginning. All of the political parties, and there's, of course, dynastic politics, which the BJP loathes, they've been on the take from everyone. Anyways, when been to Kashmir, you will see these enormous palaces, which are completely discordant with the legitimate income of the persons who own those homes. And everyone knows that everyone is, is taking money from the different, you know, KUFIA, you know, the, the, um, the intelligence agencies. Politicians are bought by any number of persons. Law enforcement would completely would would frequently repine that politicians would let militant groups know in advance of security operations. And there's a problem in in India, but also in Pakistan. Police really want police reform. They have been their own advocates of reform, and politicians have been the first to undermine that. And the reason is politicians like having police as their as their for hire. Goons. You, you saw this, for example, in the, the, the Tamasha in Karnataka with the, the parliamentarians that defected. They went to Maharashtra, and the Maharashtra police were part of enforcing this defection, right? If this were a pol- professional police force, that would never happen. So you have a market failure for police reform in India because the average voter is rural. The demand for police reform happens in urban areas, and you simply have market failure. So, one of the problems in a state like Kashmir, and you have this path dependency of insecurity and and basically um, rental rental politicians, is that where how do you start from scratch? So, from a security point of view, and I and by the way, this does not discount concerns about slippery slope, that other states will be ceremoniously stripped of its state status. From the narrow point of view of security in Kashmir, I'm sympathetic to this move because it it does a couple of things overnight. It changes politics completely. I am also not a fan of Article 370. I don't see how it is a privilege to live under a Kichiti of colonial fiefdom laws. I don't understand how liberals are holding this up. It's my right to live under the 17th century slash 18th century regime. So things like the, was it uh, is it Article 73, 74, local bodies elections? It didn't apply to Kashmir, right? So you didn't have um, this very robust system of, of, of local bodies elections. So By turning it into a UTC and getting rid of Article 370, overnight you change the political landscape. And I think this is probably also one of BJP's motivations, given its complete disgust of dynastic politics. But also overnight, the police are now answerable no longer to these corrupt, coriope politicians. They're now answerable to the center. And I think this is also going to be another really interesting natural experiment, right, because no one saw this coming with respect to accountability and, and behavior of the policing. So I think this is one thing that I think is a positive move, notwithstanding all the other concerns. And it should be stated that the courts are going to adjudicate this, right? Because Article 370 itself, the mechanism for doing this, so the president had a right to do this, but he had to consult with the Constituent Assembly. The Constituent Assembly in Kashmir disappeared when the when the Kashmiri government promulgated a constitution. You could then say that the stand-in should be the state assembly, but the state assembly was dissembled because the place is now under president's control, right, president's rule. So now what you have is the governor standing as the local consultative entity, which is appointed by the center. So you have the center consulting the center. And from an Indian legal point of view, because India is federal, uh, this is this is this contravenes the spirit of federalism, right? So th- leaving aside all the legal challenges, I think that... There, I, I, To summarize it, I think it was the right move by the wrong party for the wrong reasons with, with the wrong methods, but I think if, they, if, if this is not just a, a, a checking the box of a communal aspiration, this was a necessary but insufficient condition for mainstreaming Kashmiris. And I'm completely deaf to the uh, ethnic change argument because the only way— other people are gonna get land in the state is if Kashmiri sell it. And I also want you to remember the Kashmiri pundits. You know, everyone wants to make this a Muslim issue, but remember in 1990, About 150,000 Kashmiri pundits were driven from the state, and we never hear from them because no party cares about them, and this is in addition to the Kashmiri pundits that were killed. They are unable to return because it's insecure, nor if they were to sell their land without getting rid of 370 and 35A, they would only sell their land to the people that effectively genocided them, right? So they wouldn't get value for their land. Is this fair to those people? So you're only going to get demographic change if people sell their land. And, and you know, when you're a multi-ethnic democracy, do we really think, is it truly a liberal argument that we should have these, these, these enclaves, which are ethnic and religious petting zoos, that remain unchanged? I find this argument reprehensible. It's essentially the argument that white supremacists make in my country, right? So I don't buy it. I don't get it. And I think liberals have missed the plot on these issues, while I certainly concede their other arguments about ways, means, and motivations.
0: Um, let's start um, with it's an anonymous question, but it takes the focus back to um, India in rather general terms, which is how important will national security be in Modi's second term? So, Ian, I think that's a natural one for you.
2: It's a natural one, but it's really hard to, to answer. I think I don't. I you know I I've argued and I still think it's the case that that um, that the two thousand nineteen election was the national security election, whereas the two thousand fourteen election was the was the development election um but what we've but what we we've seen and what we kind of anticipated that we would see was there was Modi starting to deliver on some of these core uh core Hindu nationalist concerns after 2019 so once he's won that second election and he's got the glory of that in the bank and once he's really established his political dominance and he could well go on and win the next one and maybe even the next one after that if he if the yoga still keeps him fit, um, assuming and assuming there are still elections, um, all of those things. What seems to be happening so, so far is a move towards, actually, s- towards these social issues. So that's kind of interesting. So we've already seen the ban on triple talak, uh, you know, the, the, the divorce arrangements where some Muslims may say talak three times and they, they divorce their partner even if they text it to them and so on. Um, we've already seen that. We've already seen moves on the Hindi language issue. I, th- I think those, those, that's a really contested and difficult area for the for nationalists. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see some moves on creating a uniform civil code uh, so that all religious communities live under a similar code regarding marriage inheritance, so on and so forth. Um, so all. Of, uh, i uh, and sorry, yes, and there's Ayodhya as well. So, you know, sitting right next to the site of the Babri Masjid in, in Ayodhya, there are uh, prefabricated pieces of a Ram temple that I've seen photographs of them the other day, waiting for a Supreme Court ruling or a government decision to, to put that, to build that temple at Ayodhya. That's the, so that's the other, the other one. Uh, uh, and then there's the sort of the ongoing we can just call it a culture war in the universities and in, in the media and elsewhere. So I would not be at all surprised if, rather than national security dominating things, it's actually those sorts of social issues. And where that leads is a, a bit unclear.
0: Um, focus now back to Pakistan. There's, a, there's an assumption in this question, which um, you may or may not agree with, Christine, but I'll put it to you. How is all this impacting Pakistan's international reputation, and all this being the terrorism question, presumably? And more specifically, their, their ability to exercise soft power on the international stage.
1: So you know, so actually, Pakistan doesn't get the credit that it deserves. Um, Pakistan has been able to very successfully arbitrage a menagerie of terrorists and an ever-expanding nuclear stockpile to basically get away with literal murder. Right? I ask you, I'm mean, going to the point that Ian made. Imran Khan was accoladed in the international media for his statesmanship because he he had apparently the foresight to abide by international law and return um, the the pilot Abhinandan, without apparently torturing him. Right. So this is this is statesmanship, ladies and gentlemen, abiding by international humanitarian law. So. What I find really fascinating about Pakistan is how it continues to get precisely what it wants. It continues to get IMF bailouts. It continues to um, escape the declaration of being a state sponsor of terror. Mind you, the United States declared Cuba to be a state sponsor of terror, right? Mm -hmm. So I think Pakistan deserves a lot of credit for being able to take what we would all recognize as public bads and turn it into a public good. So I have a, an odd sense of um, humor. And my husband and I, we were watching this mini series. Uh, I don't even remember the show, but I remember the episode. This guy was a, was a homicidal pharmacist, and he liked mushrooms. And the way in which he exercise both of his preferences is that when diabetic patients would get their prescription filled for insulin he would give them the wrong prescription they would go into a diabetic coma he would then take their bodies to the forest and he put them on a drip that kept them alive and he let mushrooms grow over their body and I said to my husband that is the Pakistan state in a nutshell right because the entire state is there to feed the Pakistan Army, which is basically the mushrooms, and the international community, largely through the IMF, etc., is this drip that keeps it alive. And, And ordinarily, we would expect Pakistanis or any other people so ruled and mismanaged by such a predatory institution to rebel and demand something else. But what's fascinating is that, again, it's able to arbitrage all of these public bads to lubricate the friction that would ordinarily arise between the people who want something better and this Praetorian regime. It it really is a a self-licking ice cream cone. So I I think this is something that Pakistan doesn't get enough credit for. Am I wrong? And in fact, Pakistanis love the Pakistan army. And and you ask Pakistanis why? It started every war and it's lost everyone. Right, I, I, it's and, and yet it still come, commandeers the adoration of all of its people, even though it is blowback that's been killing Pakistanis. There'd be no Pakistan Taliban. Had there been no Afghan Taliban and George Mohammed and Lashkar Jangvi, they they miraculously think everyone else is to blame for their foes. I, I to me that is the most amazing puzzle: is how this 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 stable instability persists with such predictability and and really is an ecosystem. Empirically, you have to admire its beauty.
0: But maybe not a unique beauty. I, I see sh- shades of North Korea in exactly what you've just described. But
1: there's a big difference. And I know I agree. I, but there's a big difference. North Korea is genuinely in a bubble of ossification, right? Pakistan's never been shut off from the world, right? right. Information continues to abut. And my theory, my hypothesis is, and this really prepared me for a post-Trump America is the role of the conspiracy theory, right? And what Pakistan's able to do, how does it deal with these infusions of what some of us would call facts? So it inserts in conspiracy theories. And the role of the conspiracy theory is not to say what an actual, what an alternative truth is, but simply to destabilize the truth. So I was also in Pakistan when Bin Laden got killed. <laughs> and I, I mean, that was like being at Michael Jackson's Never Never Ranch because People were entertaining, the same people were entertaining multiple conspiracy theories that could not simultaneously be true, right? And that, to me, demonstrates the glory of the conspiracy theory is that you're not ever made to commit to what a truth is. You're instead allowed to entertain alternative explanations. I think that's what makes Pakistan and North Korea maybe different because, like, North Korea doesn't have to Really, ever manage the intrusion of facts into their ecosystem like Pakistan does? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm just as I often think about this as a comparison. I think that's the biggest difference is the intrusion of reality.
0: I'd agree. Um, I'm going to leap to the next question because um, I can't resist asking you a cricket question, Ian. <laughs> 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 but we have um, another um, cryptically anonymous question, is is international Greek, if we're talking about soft power dimensions that might be the one that you could say does a potentially apply. Um, put your umpire hat on. Yeah, I'm,
2: not, I'm not entirely sure that I can answer this question. I mean it's all tied, it's tied so yeah, I'm not sure I can answer this question at all um, because I don't know the, the technical details of who exactly is the term, so as far as I remember from way back when, it's individual cricket councils talking to the to the International Cricket Council talking to governments that decide whether or not um, whether or not teams tour and then also there are kind of rebellions within t- teams as to whether they want to go and tour in particular locations. But given that the domestic security situation in Pakistan is is, mar- is comparatively markedly better than it was when the ban was imposed or when cricket was effectively moved, moved offshore into the Middle East. Um, for those home matches, then I would have thought that at some point or another we would see some sort of move back in. But I would whoever asked the question, I sort of thought, oh, well, I'll throw it back to you and say, well, I mean, are we going to see tr- tr- tours to Sri Lanka happen anytime soon? And we're getting to a rather difficult situation now, actually, where, where we're seeing lots of, lots of countries um, that host tours kind of off the agenda.
0: Christine, we didn't mention Islamic State in the uh, witch's brew of uh, terrorist actors. Um, that's the next question. Rajesh um, how does Islamic Islamic state fit in the current marketplace of terrorist groups in Pakistan you want to take a stab at that
1: so basically there's not it's not an easy question or it's not a short just the answer to this is not short so when so you have to remember that Osama bin Laden paid fealty to the Afghan Taliban right he recognized the emirate of Sharia that Sharia that the Taliban had established. And remember that Al Baghdadi says that all other emirates are illegal, right? So, as long as Mullah Omar was alive and as long as Osama bin Laden was alive, this Deobandi Al Qaeda relationship perdured. And remember, um, Al Qaeda and ISIS, I mean, ISIS comes out of a perverted ideology of Al Qaeda because of the sectarian nature of. The ISIS appeal, and, and particularly coming out of Zarkawi's uh, uh, worldview. So, Pakistan has a lot of sectarian groups. Again, they're all Deobundi, SSP, LEJ, and they operate under different names. So, even when Osama bin Laden and Mullah Omar were alive and they were able to sort of exert some sort of ideological discipline over Deobundi's, we still saw Pakistani sectarian groups going to Iraq and Syria even before the Khalafat had been declared because they wanted to kill Alawites um, in Syria and they wanted to kill Shia in Iraq. But it was a very small number. So it's not a surprise that in Pakistan, the folks that have rebranded as Islamic State are actually these commanders who who previously were associated with (coughs) LEJ and SSP. So they're there. Um, I think more interestingly, though, is you, you have India, right? So if we were to take what all the political scientists say about the nature of the Modi regime, um, the general economic precarity of Muslims that we know from the Sucher committee report, this is, not, this is not appeasement, this is called facts. All of those things should be predicting that India should be hemorrhaging Islamic State fighters, right? But actually, um, Finland has produced more Islamic State fighters than India, and they have come not from the north, like Kashmir, traditionally, or even Bihar, Uttar Pradesh. They've actually come from India's southern states. And we saw the Islamic State attack in Sri Lanka. Those uh, organiz- The organization that was responsible also had ties to a sister organization in Tamil Nadu. So India is it, it in both. I think India is a really interesting case study because of federalism and because of the different kinds of state regimes that exist in India, for scholars to ask the very unpopular question: Why doesn't India produce Islamic state fighters? Right? You don't get grants, by the way, to say why doesn't a country produce Islamic state? You know, I've tried. No one. How you? The way you get stuff funded is, India is the next bastion of Islamic State. (laughs) That's how you get and you have it, say it with a radio voice. Um, So the rest of India I think is really quite interesting, the places that are producing Islamic State fighters. Now there's this fascinating question, is Islamic State in Kashmir itself? I actually don't believe this to be the case necessarily. The beauty of the Islamic State squiggle flag, and pardon me if that offends your sensibilities, I've got some pearls that can be clutched, but the brilliance of that flag is that it can be sewn by a sixth grader, right? Most of these terrorist organizations have very elaborate calligraphy that make it really hard to reproduce unless you actually know what you're doing. This Islamic State flag can be reproduced very easily. And I think that was actually by design so that anyone could, could make this flag.
0: The dumbing down of terrorism.
1: Well, it really is. I mean, it really is, you know, terrorism for dummies. Mm-hmm. And and so just because you see these Islamic State flags doesn't mean that they're there. There was also an episode in Tamil Nadu where a bunch of doofuses were appearing in Islamic State T-shirts. It was just... In, and then, of course, all of the, the, the anti-Muslim right-wing media were like, Islamic State is in Tamil Nadu. But... Um, from Pakistan's point of view, is actually very worried about Islamic State and AQIS in Kashmir, because when we look at the A, um, the Islamic State and AQIS propaganda, they're basically impugning Indian Muslims for being so parochial, only caring about their domestic concerns, including Kashmir, and why aren't you caring about the Ummah? So I I've I have also. Hypothesize that not only was that Pulwama attack meant to give Modi an electoral victory, it was also an opening salvo for Pakistan trying to make sure that it retains control of the Kashmir narrative, for a variety of reasons that I can elaborate. Well, but you, to... I won't. <laughs> because...
0: From Jitesh, we have, do you foresee Pakistan ever abandoning its strategy of using non-state actors against India even if it threatens its own existence because i think that kind of um brings us back to the the core ian could you briefly take a stab at that and then christine a final word from you
2: ever <laughs> was that a question so it, it, over the foreseeable future uh, no and i think and i think the principal reason for that is that uh, is that there's a widening gap now between where india is going and where pakistan is staying um mm-hmm. And as that, that gaps widens ever greater, it's going, it's going to be, the, Pakistan's predicament becomes more and more difficult to manage, notwithstanding its multiple international sponsors and friends. But, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be, I just wouldn't want to be sitting there in, in Pakistan's position provided that India can, can, can sustain the economic development, the infrastructure, the reform, all of the things that India needs to do and should be doing, Pakistan is going to be left behind. I mean, we've got a situation now where living standards are improving faster and are arguably better in many parts of Bangladesh than they are in Pakistan and that is a, should be an issue of acute embarrassment to Islamabad if that situation continues over then then i think you know they don't really have very many alternatives now if the china pakistan economic corridor suddenly produces rivers of gold for pakistan as opposed to for china if the all of the power projects and all the rest of it lead to this kind of this this sort of surge in economic development of pakistan then pakistan might be able to develop other kinds of ways of dealing with, with india but at the moment, I can't see that.
0: Interesting, you mentioned China. It's about the first event I think I've also run where China hasn't been one of the questions. I'm so posed. sorry, that I didn't, <laughs> I'd mentioned the scene. Almost had a clean pass through to the end. There. Um, Christine, final word from you.
1: So, you. know, I agree with Ian. I mean, Pakistan has. So we could pose a, a counterfactual, right? What What would be good for Pakistan would be somehow a resolution of its disputes with India, right? We could see all of the benefits of trade. I could make all these arguments. But why will there never be a rapprochement with India is because of the Pakistan army. The Pakistan army, if it were to resolve its dispute with India, what is its justification for being this large conventional army that loots Pakistan? There's also an ideological problem here. Any resolution or rapprochement with India would inevitably require Pakistan to let go of its Kashmir fetishization. And its obsession with Kashmir is ideological, it's tied to the two-nation theory. If it lets go of Kashmir, then Pakistan itself is nothing but a failed version of India, right? So you, come, you can either use a materialist argument which looks at the Pakistan army's interest to be a spoiler. You could look at what rapprochement with India means for the viability of the two-nation theory which is, you know, the poor thing has been pummeled so much, they should just give it a proper burial and be and be done with it. So if you, if you take as fairly given as I do that Pakistan will be unable to give up its revisionist uh, approach, not only with respect to Kashmir, but also trying to impede India's rise in the international system, it has a dilemma. It has an army that can start wars but cannot win them. It has nuclear weapons that it actually can't use. They're only good for risk generation. Once they use them, Pakistan ceases to exist as a political entity. So the only strategy it has to continue to harass India is jihadis under the umbrella of its nuclear assets. And I, I see nothing short of a giant meteor, perhaps catastrophic global warming, uh, that, that changes this.
0: Again, I'm reminded of the Korean com- comparison. And, <laughs> and, and today I should say it's not just it, uh, India's Independence Day, it's also South Korea's Independence Day. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's a future project for Lutroba Asia could think about taking forward as a as a comparison. It just remains for me, ladies and gentlemen, um, to thank you for participating in our first experiment with, um, with Slido, um, with, I think, relative ease, with the thanks of um, Tom to come and fix out my tec- technical glitch in the nick of time. Um, uh, but especially to our two expert panellists who have given, I think, a, a really fascinating, wide wide-ranging discussion on the... Th- the thorniest and trickiest and most impenetrable of uh, problems, um, which uh, I've certainly received an education on today. So um, thank you uh, to Professor Ian Hall and, uh,
1: and Chris Fair. Well, thank you.